Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. Today we're doing something a little different. We're going to be sharing a chapter from Patrick Mason's new book, Restoration. The chapter we're sharing lays out Patrick's thesis for what the word restoration meant in its original sense, and how that meaning is incredibly relevant for the many members of the church who are longing to engage with the world and lift up its most marginalized and vulnerable. We'll get right to it and turn it over to Patrick, but we want to wish everyone a happy Memorial Day weekend, and we hope that you enjoy this chapter from Restoration. Restoration is one of those terms that only makes sense when connected to something else. In other words, for a restoration to happen, something has to be restored. So when we talk about the restoration, what exactly do we think is being restored? The Church's Bicentennial Proclamation to the World offers a helpful synopsis. According to the proclamation, the restoration entails a restored church, restored priesthood authority, including priesthood keys, and the restored gospel, meaning the doctrine and teachings of Jesus Christ and the prophets and apostles throughout the ages. The work of the restoration is not yet complete, but remains ongoing through the gift of continuing revelation. God continues to inspire and guide the apostles he has called to lead the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is Christ's New Testament church restored. But here's the funny thing. As far as I've been able to discover, Joseph Smith never talked about a, quote, restored church. Not once. I've scoured both the scriptures he produced as well as the Joseph Smith papers, which aim to gather and publish every known surviving Joseph Smith document. Except in the historical introductions, which are written by modern scholars and are not part of the original sources, I have not found a single use of the phrases restored church or restoration of the church. This was more than a little surprising to me. You might even say it came as a revelation. It turns out that the first time the phrase restored church was used in general conference came in October 1918 in a talk by Elder James E. Talmadge. That is, it occurred more than 88 years after the organization of the church in April 1830. Usage of the phrase increased somewhat over the ensuing years until it consistently appeared in conference talks about 30 times per decade from the 1950s through the 1990s. References to the restored church spiked in general conference during the 2010s, with its relative usage doubling any previous decade. This is not to say that the concept of a restored church didn't exist among the earliest generations of Latter-day Saints. It's simply to note that the exact phrase, quote, restored church, seems to have gained traction only during our lifetimes. Of course, that could be chalked up to idiosyncratic phrasing. What about the, quote, restored gospel? It turns out that the phrase restored gospel, while considerably more popular than restored church, also became popular only in the 20th century. Restored gospel appears a mere three times in general conference addresses prior to 1900. 
Even then, it remained only a modestly useful phrase until this century when usage shot up significantly. That's the general trend for the term restoration as well. It certainly appears in 19th century general conference talks, but in relatively low frequency, then skyrockets to unprecedented levels in the 1990s, 2000s, and 2010s. Let's allow that to sink in. That when the earliest generations of Latter-day Saints referred to restoration, they rarely invoked the phrase restored gospel and never talked in so many words about the restored church. Yet, restoration was an important part of their religious vocabulary. The word and its variations appear in more than 50 passages in the Book of Mormon and some two dozen in the Doctrine and Covenants, with hundreds more references in the Joseph Smith papers. So what did Joseph Smith and his contemporaries think the restoration was restoring? In a word, Israel. Wait, what? Restore or restoration are used in various ways in Latter-day Saint scripture and early church teachings. Sometimes the words are used in prosaic fashion, for instance, when a deposed leader is restored to his rightful place. In several passages, they refer to resurrection, the restoration of our body in its perfect frame, spoken of so powerfully by Amulek, Jacob, Alma, and Joseph F. Smith. The prophet Joseph Smith wrote and spoke on multiple occasions about the restoration of the priesthood, mostly in Nauvoo in connection with the developing theology and ordinances of the temple. But the vast majority of references in Scripture and Joseph Smith's teachings are to the restoration of the house of Israel in the last days. Nephi is the first one in Restoration Scripture to take up this theme. It makes perfect sense because his family had recently become part of scattered Israel after leaving Jerusalem and making their way through the wilderness and eventually to the Promised Land. Nephi therefore leaned heavily on the teachings of Isaiah, the preeminent prophet of Israel's dispersal and promised restoration. Hoping to console his family with the knowledge that their exile would not last forever, Nephi spake unto them much concerning the restoration of the Jews in the latter days. Jacob picked up right where his older brother left off. The stated purpose of his first recorded sermon is to help his Nephite listeners understand that the scattered remnants of Israel would be restored to the lands of their inheritance and shall be established in all their lands of promise. Several hundred years later, the prophet Mormon brackets his account of the resurrected Lord's appearance in the promised land with editorial comments about God restoring all the house of Jacob unto the knowledge of the covenant that he hath covenanted with them. Joseph Smith's subsequent revelations and teachings follow a similar pattern. A March 1831 revelation about the last days and the second coming declares that the day of redemption is connected with the restoration of the scattered Israel. Tellingly, the only explicit reference to restoration in the Articles of Faith comes not in relationship to the principles and ordinances of the gospel or priesthood authority or the organization of the church, but rather in the 10th article, which proclaims that Latter-day Saints believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the ten tribes. An important aspect of these pronouncements about the restoration of the house of Israel are specific prophecies regarding the Latter-day restoration of the Lamanites, one of the scattered remnants of Israel. Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Alma, Samuel, and Moroni all wrote or preached powerfully on this theme. 
Samuel speaks poignantly about how the Lamanites, his own people, would dwindle in unbelief, but that the Lord, through his mercy, would one day bring about a restoration of our brethren, the Lamanites, again to the knowledge of the truth. Nephi had a front row seat to the breaking off of the Lehites from the main branch of Israel, as well as the creation of the Lamanites as a separate sub-branch. With those scatterings in mind, he prophesied that the restoration of both the Jews and the Lamanites represented a crucial step toward the anticipated time when the Lord God shall commence his work among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, to bring about the restoration of his people upon the earth. These scriptural passages about the restoration of Israel and the Lamanites are among the least quoted or discussed among contemporary Latter-day Saints. That wasn't always the case. In fact, the first generation of saints couldn't stop talking about Israel. One historian found that the restoration of Israel was the number one theme discussed in the saints' published literature from 1830 to 1846. When Oliver Cowdery reported what the angel Moroni said to Joseph Smith during their long conversation on the night of September 21, 1823, virtually all of it was dedicated to the theme of the restoration of Israel through the lens of multiple Old Testament prophecies. Sidney Rigdon understood the restoration of the house of Israel to be the single most important project that God was undertaking in the last days. Mentions of Israel's restoration in General Conference declined fairly steadily from a high point in the 1870s to an all-time low in the 2000s. Despite our feasting on the Book of Mormon in unprecedented ways, it seems that over the past century, the restoration of Israel, once a staple of the Latter-day Saint theological diet, got bottled up in a dusty jar at the back of the top shelf. One thing that great chefs do is bring back old recipes and breathe new life into them for modern tastes. In a religious context, prophets often do a similar thing, retrieving neglected or forgotten aspects of our theology or practice and then using them to call us to a renewed sense of worship and discipleship. One of the hallmarks of President Russell M. Nelson's ministry has been to reintroduce the language of Israel's restoration and gathering into the Latter-day Saint vocabulary. A persistent theme of his presidency is that the gathering of Israel is the most important thing taking place on earth today. President Nelson has invited us to delve back into those long-neglected passages of the Book of Mormon with fresh eyes and renewed vigor, reconsidering their insistent message concerning the prophesied restoration of the scattered branches of Israel, including the Lamanites, in modern times. For many modern readers, the scripture's talk of Israel can seem archaic, even clannish. Furthermore, any Latter-day Saint who has Jewish friends knows how awkward that conversation can be, as if we are appropriating their people's ancient identity and homeland. So how can we be faithful to the prophetic injunction to restore Israel in a way that makes sense in the 21st century? Not surprisingly, given his obsession with the theme, Nephi provides the key. He explains that the restoration of the various branches of Israel, the Jews, the scattered tribes, and the remnant of Lehi, will be accomplished both for the sake of God's age-old promises to those particular peoples, and also as part of a more general work whereby God will bring about the restoration of his people upon the earth. 
Similarly, in one of the most important revelations to Joseph Smith about priesthood and missionary work, two of the great tools of the gathering of Israel, the Lord affirms that the church, the words of the prophets, and the gathering of the saints have all been brought about so as to accomplish one great goal, the restoration of his people. Put another way, there are many things that have been lost and scattered that need to be restored. Israel, the Lamanites, the gospel, the priesthood, the church, covenants, ordinances, spiritual gifts, and so forth. We call the whole package the restoration of all things. This all-encompassing phrase originated with Jesus. He, in turn, was invoking the prophet Malachi, whom Moroni quoted to Joseph Smith, referring to the coming of Elijah in the last days to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. In other words, from the Hebrew prophets to Christ, from the Nephite prophets to Joseph Smith and the modern church, the message has been the same. God's great restoration project seeks to unite all generations of the human family, from the beginning to the present, and onward all the way to the end of time. In fact, as Malachi and Moroni prophesied, without this restoration, the whole earth would be utterly wasted. All of God's work of creation would, in the end, come to naught. Yes, there are many things to restore. But ultimately, God isn't concerned with restoring things so much as using those things to restore what really matters, his people. So the restoration of all things is designed with one grand aim in mind, restoring God's people, our father and mother's children, their eternal family to wholeness. The restoration of God's people simultaneously affirms and transcends human individuality. We will each be restored to our own families, even as we are all reunited with the entire family of God. Isaiah was so concerned about the restoration of the house of Israel because he had the burden of seeing its scattering. Nephi and the subsequent Lehite prophets likewise worried about the scattering and restoration of Lehi's surviving descendants. It was only natural that they would focus their prophecies on the parts of the vineyard they had been specially called to tend. For modern readers of these texts, it is essential that we neither ignore nor co-opt the promises God made to these distinct branches of his family. God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants, whereby not only they, but all the people of the earth would be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant was at once particular to the people of Israel and general in its total effect. Similarly, God's promises about the restoration of the Lamanites came in response to their unique situation, but were also part of a much broader story about God's redemption of the world. In other words, God will restore the Lamanites, both as Lamanites, with any of the righteous traditions of their mothers and fathers, and as part of the whole human family. However, most of us are not Israel, not in the original sense, nor are we Lamanites. We are recipients or inheritors of God's promises to Abraham, not necessarily by virtue of biological descent, but rather as the effects of those promises ripple across time and throughout the human family. One of the key innovations of Christian theology originally formulated by the Apostle Paul is that those who believe and are baptized in the name of Jesus become adopted into a new Israel, 
and therefore live a new life under a new covenant. This is the teaching of the modern church as well, which affirms with Paul that we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In short, God's promises to original Israel and new Israel are remarkably similar. Each of us stands to inherit all the blessings of Abraham, no matter where we fit on the family tree or how we got there. The purpose of the restoration is to fulfill the ancient promises that all of God's children, regardless of the nation or clan they find themselves born into, can and will be heirs to the kingdom of God. One of the things I love about studying history is that it allows me to learn about and enter into the experience of people whose lives are totally different from my own upbringing as a white male Latter-day Saint in a middle-class suburb of Salt Lake City. Yet while I can learn from and appreciate other people's stories, there's a certain violence in claiming them as my own. For instance, I have posters of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X hanging on the wall in my office because they have deeply shaped my own ethical formation and how I see the world. As much as I study about African-American lives and histories, however, their story isn't my story. This is true especially because their collective identity has been shaped by an experience of shared suffering that I simply do not and never can inhabit. Similarly, the stories of original Israel and the Lamanites are, to a significant degree, stories of suffering. As their histories played out, both peoples were scattered, despised, persecuted, dwindled, and marginalized. In the Book of Mormon, the prophet Jacob taught that God would be especially merciful toward the people the Nephites regarded as filthy. God's word holds out special promises for the Lamanites because God's heart beats in sympathy with his oppressed and marginalized children. It's no coincidence that when Jesus announced his atoning ministry and first proclaimed his messiahship, he quoted from Isaiah, the great prophet of Israel's scattering and restoration. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, the bruised. These are the people to whom the Messiah's anointing is directed. On a spiritual level, that could be anyone. But in a historical sense, Jesus' words apply directly to Israel, the Lamanites, and every other subjugated and victimized people. Our God, the Messiah of the marginalized, will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. In other words, he will restore Israel, he will restore the Lamanites, and he will restore all his people. Any restoration we claim to participate in must therefore be primarily oriented to and for those who have suffered on the margins of history and currently suffer on the margins of society. The saints of the 19th and 20th centuries felt confident about where and how to find scattered Israel and the Lamanites. 
In this century, we've become humbler about our ability to identify precisely who is in each group. If we presume that the ten tribes of Israel are still, by and large, lost, and if because of DNA testing we no longer have confidence in who or where the descendants of the Lamanites are, then to some significant degree, I think we have to leave it directly in the Lord's hands to bring about those particular restorations. That leaves us with the task of restoring to wholeness those children of God in our contemporary world whose experiences are primarily those of suffering and marginalization, those in whom we can hear the echoes and see the image of original Israel and the Lamanites, those who are despised and rejected and scattered, those who are deemed by some as filthy, refugees and displaced persons, immigrants, the poor, the homeless, racial minorities, those who suffer with disabilities or mental illness, victims of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. That's where God's particular work of restoration will happen today as part of the general restoration of all his people. The great Christian author C.S. Lewis beautifully wrote that next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. In restoration theology, we don't believe in what Catholics and others call the real presence of Jesus in our sacramental emblems. Therefore, applying a somewhat revised version of Lewis's profound insight, we can affirm that there is absolutely nothing in this world that is holier than the person next to you. She is not only created in the image of God, but existed with God from the eternities and will continue to do so forever and ever potentially as a goddess herself. Because of its unique view of who we really are, where we come from, and what we are destined to become, the restoration must stand at the forefront of the modern commitment to human dignity for all people. The restoration will remain ongoing and incomplete so long as there are any poor or any manner of ites among us. Zion has not been achieved. Followers of Christ therefore have a special calling to the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, the bruised, both our sisters and brothers immediately in our midst, as well as those who find themselves in dire circumstances anywhere in the world. In his beautiful discussion of spiritual gifts, Paul reminded the ancient members of the body of Christ that the members of the body, even though they seem to be weaker, are essential. And those members of the body that seem less honorable, we place greater honor on them. Why do we do this? Because God does. The apostle continues, God has brought the body together while giving greater honor to the lesser members. Both individually and communally, we are to live out the parable of the prodigal son. So what is being restored in the restoration? God's people. The poor will receive the kingdom of heaven. The brokenhearted will be healed. The captives will be liberated. The blind will see. The bruised will be made whole. In the ultimate sense, this is the work of atonement and reconciliation that only our Savior Jesus Christ can fully accomplish. But in the more immediate sense, The call of the restoration is for each recipient of Christ's redeeming love to extend that grace 
by co-participating with him as saviors on Mount Zion. That salvation cannot and will not wait for the next world. The restoration of God's people is here. The restoration of God's people is now. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this chapter from Restoration. If Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we'd love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. It really helps us to get the word out about Faith Matters, and we appreciate the support. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.